Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. We are in much of Jewish America, and even at Beth Am in Los Angeles, amidst a very diverse Jewish city, with a diverse array of Jewish ethnicities, even within our community, we are, we must admit, quite, as they call it now, Ashkenormative. The professional religious leadership of the community all come from Ashkenazi backgrounds. And in general, our approach to liturgy and holidays and most of our tunes hail from the Eastern European part of the Jewish world. And it's delightful and truly a religious thrill for me when one of the Persian or Sephardi Mizrahi members of our community reads Torah or Haftarah to their inherited communal truck. It adds to the color of our religious experience. But it's rare. And it's perhaps too rare. At Beth Am, we are primarily Chalent, not Chamin. We're primarily Shabbos, not Shabbat. We are a Yiddish-inflected practice. So much so that I once received an unexpected email from a Beth Am member who comes from a Mizrahi family who felt wounded and excluded even by our use of the word shul. Shul is such a common word in American Jewish parlance. We don't think when we use it about the cultural origin or the etymology of the word. We just use it as a more Jewy word than synagogue or temple. But it's Yiddish, of course. More Ashkenormativity. And in the email, I was being asked to be sensitive to that. It's a worthy request. This past week, I learned of a very non-Ashkenormative Jewish practice, one which I wish I had learned the previous week, because it might have informed my own practice It might have illuminated this past week, which, as many of you know, has been institutionally challenging in some ways. Tunisian Jews, a very proud sub-community of Sephardi Jewry, and I have a cousin in Israel who married into a Tunisian Jewish family, they have a fascinating custom post-Hanukkah. What do most of us do when Hanukkah is over? At some point, after all the candles burned down the last night, we pack up our Hanukkiot, we place them back on the shelf in the break front, or maybe in that cabinet next to our Pesach dishes. We will not look upon them much in the next 11 and three-quarter lunar months. The holiday is over. Not for Tunisian Jews. As my friend and colleague Rabbi Barry Katz told me and then taught his congregation, Tunisian Jews, first of all, hang their Hanukkiot outside their homes during Hanukkah, and that's at least parallel to many of our customs, which is to light them in a spot in our homes which is visible from the outside. But the Tunisian custom is very exact, first of all. They hang their seven tfachim, or hand breaths, from the ground, and four hand breaths from the doorpost, just opposite the mezuzah. And their custom persists. They leave their Hanukkiah there until Purim, connecting one miracle to another. They don't actually light it those nights, but they display it, and they see it when they walk by or into their own homes, and others see it. This is a Jewish home in the dead of winter. 
This is a home that believes in miracle. This is a world, that custom must be saying, that needs miracle and illumination. Nobody puts baby in the corner, and nobody puts a Tunisian Hanukkiah away until after Purim. I find this custom marvelous. And it's evocative of other customs in our tradition that link one holiday to the next, as if we can live our ritual life jumping from one peak moment to the next in this archipelago of calendrical high points. For instance, the custom that I learned from my teachers for how to sing the last verse of the Megillah on Purim is not to sing it to the standard Megillah trup, but rather to sing it like this. Ki Mordechai HaYehudi Mishneh Melech HaChashverosh VeGadol HaYehudim VeRatzui LeRovechav Doresh Tov LeAmo VeDaver Shalom LeCholzaro, which is sung to the tune of Adir Hu from the songs at the end of the Haggadah. The Megillah may be over, but Pesach is coming soon. Now, that musical illusion may strike terror in some rather than awe. But it's a very intentional linkage. We want to stay in heightened holiday mode. But the Tunisian custom is more powerful than that. It's more than a musical ligament attaching one holiday to the next. It's a custom that reminds those who practice it, and maybe we should consider it, that miracles happened and they may happen again. That there was joy, and there will be joy. That there was light, and that we need light. I wonder, and I have no way of knowing, I haven't done the research, if this custom has to do at least in part with one of the most wonderful and most odd of Talmudic texts. A text which seems to undermine the main Talmudic treatment of Hanukkah. Remember, it was the rabbis of the Talmud who transmuted a military victory by the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees, into a spiritual revival and a miraculous story about oil lasting and rededicating the temple. They turned it into the most Jewishly particular of holidays you could imagine, restoring Jewish sovereignty and Jewish worship to the Jewish temple in the Jewish capital of the Jewish nation. But elsewhere in the Talmud, in Tractate Avodah which ostensibly is a tractate legislating against any form of idolatry, there is a wonderful tale, a wonderful midrash, that draws at least subtle association to idolatry and to ancient pagan winter rituals that are evocative of our own festival of lights. The Talmud imagines Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, in their first months of life. And if you're going to understand the internal logic, internal logic of the Midrash, you need to embrace the Talmudic notion that the world was created when? On Rosh Hashanah, of course. As we say, Hayom Harat Olam, today is the birthday of the world. So Adam and Eve were born towards the end of summer. They lived their first few months as the calendar, as it were, moved through October and November, which means they witnessed days getting shorter and shorter with fewer hours of sunlight. And this was their first experience of it. According to the Midrash, they started to get nervous. They knew how precious the sun was for warmth and for light. If the pattern continued, they would be shrouded in cold darkness. They would die. 
and concerned that the world was ending because of their sins, they decided to fast. For how long? Eight days. You can see where this is going. And then after eight days of fasting, the first winter solstice arrived. The days, by their measurements, started to get longer. The rhythm had reversed. Adam declared a festival just for the two of them, a very intimate holiday, a festival of lights to be celebrated each year for eight nights in the darkest time of the year. This is a Talmudic fantasy of a primordial prehistory origin of Hanukkah, as if the historical story that took place in the 2nd century BCE was preordained, awakening an eight-day festival of light that is as old as the world itself. And the story also connects the very particularistic and Jewy holiday of Hanukkah with one of the most common of all calendrical observances across cultures and religions, a celebration of light and perhaps the ongoing miracle of light in the dead of winter when the world's light is at its nadir, at least on the northern hemisphere. Now, I know that we're a lunar religion and that Halachic Hanukkah, it journeys over the years from the end of the November, Thanksgiving, and to the beginning of January. But the conceptual Hanukkah, I think, is a solstice festival, a ritual reminding us of the possibility of miracle and the need to force light into a darkened world. And for the Tunisians, that just begins at Hanukkah, at the darkest time of the year. And it takes us all the way through the dark months until the precipice of spring. I love how that Talmudic story ends. What's Adam's interpretation of this incredible turnaround from winnowing light to burgeoning light? Min hago shel olam hu. It's just the way of the world. It gets dark over and over again, and then somehow the light shines. And we need to ignite that light, not just on Hanukkah, which has now been over for more than a week, but all times. Which brings me, of course, to the sequel to Mary Poppins, which I consider to be an utter abomination. <laughs> they should have let the original perfect movie stand on its own. They destroyed something precious. But in that awful excuse for a movie, they convert Dick Van Dyke's character as the Chim Chim True chimney sweep from the original into Lin-Manuel Miranda's lamplighter in the sequel. I hate the movie in case that is clear. <laughs> it should not exist. It's an insult to all us Mary Poppins purists. But the lyrics to the lamplighter's anthem are catchy, and even more important, they work in this sermon. The, the name of the song is Trip a Little Light Fantastic. I want to admit, I'm not even sure what the syntax of that sentence is or what it's supposed to mean. Is trip a noun? Is it a verb? I don't know. Somebody was into something when that was written. But the song is whimsical and fun. And the opening lyrics are, let's say you're lost in a park. Sure, you can give into the dark or you can trip a little light fantastic with me. I think the Tunisians would like that as they trip a little light fantastic all the way from Hanukkah to Purim. It continues. When you're alone in your room, your choices, 
just embrace the gloom, or you can trip a little light fantastic with me. Of course, it's Disney. It's overly simple and facile. It's very pat. It's very hard to do when you're in the gloom. But then again, there may be nothing more human than trying to shine light in the dark, and maybe nothing more Jewish. I realize that I rarely quote the Rebbe, Rebbe Menachem Mendel Schneerson. Not sure if I should say of blessed memory or not, because you never know. <laughs> I studied lots of his teachings in depth when I was exploring Hasidic mysticism during my sabbatical. In addition to being an obviously a visionary Jewish leader, he was also a tremendous scholar of our tradition, and he was a phenomenal storyteller. Here's one that he told that seems apt. These are now his words. I was once privileged to hear from my father, who was my father-in-law, who was the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, that his father, Rabbi Shalom Dovber, was once asked, what is a chassid? He replied, a chassid is like a street lamp lighter. In olden days, there was a person in every town who would light the street lamps with a light he carried at the end of a long pole. On the street corners, the lamps were there in readiness, waiting to be lit. Sometimes, however, the lamps are not as easily accessible. They are, there are lamps in forsaken places, in deserts or at sea. There must be someone to light even those lamps, so that they may fulfill their purpose and light up the paths of others. So a chassid is one who sets out to light the lamps, to light up the souls of Jews with a light of Torah. And though I struggle with some of the way Chabad positions itself in the world, they really have carried out that charge with incredible intensity and focus. And boy, do we need some Hasidim like that these days. Boy, do we need to be Hasidim like that. These are dark times. We are heavy with loss and worry. We are laden down with complicated decisions like the one we had to make about Shabbat afternoon this week. And many of us are wondering when and if and how light will return to Israel, to Jewish life in America, when and how this palpable darkness will lift. I'm not sure about the when, but I feel more confident in the how and certainly in the who. Judah and our Parsha knew it. He approaches Yosef because someone needs to be the one to bring a brother out of a pit, a family out of chaos, and a society out of darkness. Stop waiting for another to do it. And Lin-Manuel Miranda and the Lubavitcher Rebbe, a pair likely never paired together before, they knew that to be a lamplighter is a holy act. It takes courage to bring light when and where it is, it is obscured. And hopefully those who come to my home this Shabbat afternoon, and you're all invited, will show that they know that the big story of the weekend, however it may be spun in the media, is that Beth Am gathered in inspiring numbers to pray and to learn and to end Shabbat together. Haters be damned. And the Tunisians knew. It depends on you. Keep your Hanukkah out to remind yourself and others that you must bring the light until Purim and beyond. Mm-hmm.
You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.